This is an ABC podcast. Resorts, homes and a newly built hospital have been washed away. I'm just holding on for dear life here. This isn't fun. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. Save what for dream. You must ready. Helping your community. Helping your family. Helping you. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Hola, I'm Josiah Nanunga, based in Fiji. And I'm Fred Hooper, based in Australia, and this is Pacific Prepared. It's a show all about natural disasters, climate change, and traditional knowledge, and how these things are all connected. And you'll hear that through stories from right across the Pacific. Each week we work with local reporters. They're on the ground letting us know what's happening in this space and what people want to hear about. On today's show, we get to hear the importance of mother language before, during and after a disaster. Also, young people and climate change. We'll find out what drives some young people to take action on climate change and what they think about it in general. And water might not seem like an issue in the Pacific, but some parts of the Pacific have really poor access to safe or basic drinking water. We'll take a closer look at that. That's all coming up. This is Pacific Prepared. Disaster is part of our life, and recovering is also part of our life. As you see, they're smiling despite the devastation. That's how we are. You are listening to Pacific Prepared. Have you got any sort of experiences, Joe, or have you, what have you seen living in the Pacific in terms of young people getting involved with climate change and climate action? Fred, from my recent uh, experience, like visiting communities, getting uh, involved with young people at the community level, I'm pleased uh, to see and uh, having witnessed uh, the approach uh, or the initiatives uh, implemented by young people in uh, various communities, particularly in communities that are located along the along the coast, eh? and uh, we are glad that uh, one of those climate warriors, La Vetna Langi Siru, is with us today to talk about or talk more on uh, on this issue, climate change, and the importance of involving young people or youth. Uh, uh, you know, to deal with this uh, critical issue. Bulavanakalangi, welcome to the program. Bulavanakalangi, welcome to the program. Langi, what's your connection to climate action, first of all? What's your sort of connection to, or to in that space? For me, this work has been a lifelong work. Uh, it is a work, uh, it is a work that uh, basically came out of uh, or has been influenced by my uh, my upbringing because I grew up um, uh, as a child, spending a few years in our village in Ra, and so that was kind of my first um, observation about uh, sea level rise. And so we saw firsthand how sea level rise was impacting my coastal community. And then in 2016. And so, Lungi, what do you remember from that as a young person growing up in Fiji? What was it like? like what do you remember seeing as a young person, as a, as a child, I suppose, growing up in those small villages? We, we, we saw sea level rise, but we weren't able at the time to kind of connect it to what was happening, for instance, the conversation around global warming. We thought it was just, you know, 
uh, a natural um, occurrence. And, and so because of the sea level rise, the community had to build a seawall. And over the years, because of the increasing tide, uh, the increasing sea level, and the uh, increasing strength of some of the storm surges, that particular seawall has kind of broken down. And, and, and so, again, you know, we, we had thought at the time that it was just a natural occurrence. And it wasn't until I went to high school when I started learning uh, geography, when I kind of had my first, um, you know, um, light bulb moment about realizing the connection between um, global warming and what was happening in the um, in the community. So that was kind of the the first experience uh, growing up. So you've talked about the the, the issue while growing up and uh, going into high school. Uh, at this at this level, how did you ensure that young people at at your village, you know, actively involved in the fight against climate change? Kind of from that experience, uh, realizing that this was connected to global warming, it was connected to uh, the melting ice in uh, the polar regions. Um, I had uh, some understanding about what was taking place, and so I got um, kind of interested and started looking up uh, some of the materials and that was kind of uh, my first exposure to the um, you know the the UNFCCC uh, space so uh, the the basically the Rio summit that happened back in 1992 which was the year that I was born uh, three big declarations Three big um, conventions came out of that, and one of them was the United Nations Framework Con Convention on Climate Change. And uh, so I started following the the conversation, and I realized that it's taken almost, you know, over 20 years uh, just to get to Paris uh, to kind of get some political will and commitment about dealing with climate change. And... Um, and I thought, you know, we cannot wait until governments uh, acted. And so we take it upon us uh, to do something. And so I started mobilizing young people. I started creating uh, platforms and spaces where we could kind of learn from each other about what was happening in our different communities, uh, but also talk about what actions that we can collective, collectively take to address climate change and so we did a lot of awareness a lot of training and Lange, you might have already sort of partially answered this question but why is it so important that you think or why do you think it's so important that young people are the ones who drive this at the moment in terms of climate change and climate action why is it so important that it's young people these uh, uh threat to not only the livelihoods, but also to the security and the well-being uh, of people, especially for people who live in climate-vulnerable um, nations. And, and most of us in the Pacific are quite um, vulnerable to the threat of climate change because we live you know, in this blue Pacific Ocean 
where not only the the seas is rising but also the sea you know the the ocean is warming so we are seeing a lot of tropical cyclones of uh you know of of uh, um um strong you know it's 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 all not only becoming uh, strong uh in intensity but also the frequency is becoming more uh, frequent in our region and so young people for instance are being um threatened in terms of uh, access to education when schools are damaged when hospitals are damaged it's not only young people it's also mothers and elders um for weeks they go out without food without clean water uh without some of the basic uh services and so this will become more intense over the coming years if we are not dealing with climate change and so uh it's super important for young people to be involved now in shaping climate policies and climate action not only in our region but also globally so uh i think that's the uh, it's probably the uh, the the long-winded answer to your question Fred. Wangi great insight uh, your last words of advice or what more could be done uh to at least mitigate the impacts of climate change at the community level There's there's a lot to be done actually. Um I know that young people are not only I mean one of the things that young people are, are are kind of thinking about when when it comes to climate change is that we're dealing with climate impacts and we don't want to show you know um or want to tell you know the world that Yes, we are vulnerable. I mean, of course we are vulnerable, but it's not the only thing uh that we're dealing with. Young people are also rising up to the challenge uh to form solutions to address climate change. And I've seen this across the Pacific. I think there's a need for support for young people. Uh and this is not only monetary support but also, you know, other forms of support whether it's technical support whether it's mentorship young people need a lot of this to be able to develop the um um the capacity to drive some of this work but also kind of the mental fortitude to uh to um to deal with the threats of climate change and then of course um we need leaders to recognize that young people are not there to kind of threaten them but they are a accomplice they are allies they are very worried about the future that they're growing up in they're very worried about the future that they have before them and so they're willing to come to the table to offer solutions but also um co-implement some of the solutions with governments with non you know with other non-state actors including de- development partners there was lavetana langisir one of for the climate warriors amongst young people here in Fiji thank you so much for your time it was nice chatting with you thank you thank you for the opportunity thank you fred thank you joe yeah. we need to be prepared for the future helping you stay safe we have built a seawall two times but it did no good What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. Pacific prepared. Pacific prepared. Pacific prepared.
one of the biggest issues around natural disasters could be, you know, getting messages out to people, Joe. I, I suppose we don't always think about not just translation of the message, but also making sure that it's presented in a way or a, a dialect, I suppose, that people are going to understand in, in all parts of the Pacific. Uh, absolutely. It's very important when, when in times of disaster, trying to relay the message to people at the community level. And I, I was fortunate enough to, to interview uh, Mr. Cipriano Nemani, who's the current director for the Department of Heritage, Culture and the Arts under the Ministry of Ethiopian Affairs here in Fiji. I, I eventually ask him uh, the point that uh, you've just highlighted, you know, the importance of translating information, especially in times of disaster, particularly when Fiji is still in cyclone season, you know, the need to translate weather updates or the information issued by the Fiji Met Office or the National Disaster Management Office to be better understood by people at the community level, yeah. Especially to those who live or reside in rural areas, maritime zones, uh, to ensure they prepare accordingly. What do you reckon? And I guess it doesn't always translate exactly right, does it? It doesn't sort of, if, even if you did a straight translation, you might need to sort of tweak it a bit, right, to get the message correct. Is that, does that sound fair? Right. Well, for more into that, we'll have to, to hear the, the, the comments or the remarks uh, shared by Mr. Nemani, the Director of Heritage Nuts. Let's listen. Thank you very much. Uh, so basically, correct, we celebrated uh, um, International Mother Language Day on the 21st of February. Uh, for Fiji, we wanted to be different, uh, to have a four-day, three-day celebration of uh, uh, International Mother Language Day. The reason primarily because how we hold uh, wasn't even our mother language of great importance to us. Eh? And uh, as you have rightly uh, articulated, uh, we are still in the cyclone season uh, and uh, just yesterday uh, the Department of Heritage in conjunction with the UNESCO office uh, hosted a workshop on intangible cultural heritage or traditional knowledge systems uh, and how can we respond during times of crisis or emergencies. Eh? Uh, and it coincides with this very special day because of uh, the linkage between language and the crisis or emergencies mm -hmm. we face. And there was a special presentation yesterday by Dr. Apollonia Tamata from the University of South Pacific sharing exactly that uh, language and how pivotal it is in communicating the right language, mm -hmm. sorry, communicating the right message to our people out in the communities who often don't understand English, who often don't speak English, uh, but they're very fluent. And of course, because it's innate uh, in their own Vosanivano or dialects. So uh, it was very... Um, thought-provoking for many government stakeholders and non-government institutions who were present during the workshop uh, to listen at, and, and hear from experts, local experts, share how they have gained from the uh, knowledge shared by our elders out there in the villages when they talk about uh, emergencies like crisis, cl um, climate change, sea level rise, flooding, and all these disasters that happen um, around the country uh, and how our forefathers have uh, used their own approaches, methodologies to mitigate, to respond and to prepare before the next cycle. Eh? Mm -hmm. So there's uh, so many um, 
you see wisdom uh transcending uh you know how they do their work and how they uh manifest these in the daily things that they do eh? so it's a very special uh, week for us and it continues it ends today uh basically celebrating the connection between our mother tongue and the various facets of our life in mm-hmm. society eh? so uh, it will be an annual undertaking and one of the key things we wanted to do especially in Fiji because of the enormity of the issues we face eh? not only here in the in Fiji but in the Pacific and also globally as well mm. and how we can revert back and using our, our, the, our wisdom and knowledge of our ancestors to help um, find solutions eh, mm. to the many issues that we face. Right. Yeah. Uh, you've uh, highlighted about uh, how elders in communities are mitigating the impacts of climate change, rising tides, using traditional knowledge eh, uh, passed down from the elders. So, um, do you think more needs to be done in terms of uh, you know dissecting uh, the the relevant information or message from relevant authorities, which includes radio as well, which is the powerful medium uh, of uh, communication here in Fiji, to actually make these people understand? Because I believe some of uh, the other Fijians in uh, rural and maritime areas will not understand the reality. They might have heard of the term. But they are not like knowledge, yeah. But uh, uh, understanding climate change and rising sea level, definitely. And uh, uh, you know, primarily, I think um, what is key for us at this stage is having the right policies from a departmental perspective and government's perspective. Having the right policies, uh, protection mechanisms like legislations and with uh, regulatory regulatory functions to establish institutions that can enforce and empower our communities and our people to use and revitalize and, of course, engage in the Vosanivanuai. And this is uh, uh, true for us here in Fiji. There's a lot to be done uh, in areas of uh, community development, looking at uh, one of the key things we are doing at the moment is working with the Ministry of Itokia Affairs. We are under the Ministry of Itokia Affairs in developing a national action plan for International Decade for Indigenous Language and it runs from 2022 to 2032. So one of the key actions we are proposing there is uh, empowering our young people to document, collect their dialects, um, and stories from their elders mm. and document this and, um, Perhaps create uh, glossaries or dictionaries, right. eh? monolingual dictionaries. So a classical example is the Hawaiian uh, dialect mm-hmm. in the Yasawas. Mm-hmm. They have their own dictionary developed. So we want to set the premise for uh, our communities, our people, young people especially, to do exactly that. Eh? Map it, document it, and of course um, uh, create publications so that it transcends. Eh? And uh, using other mediums is very key. One of the key things we are trying to do as well is looking at communication communications and uh, knowledge management and in communications um, the message that has to go out has to be clearly and carefully articulated eh? Mm -hmm. Uh, right translation so uh, one of the key things uh, I think key actions as well we wanted to pursue is uh, create a lot of translation training for our people Mm -hmm. not only using standard Fijian but also uh, in the Vosan Ivanua so that even I myself when serving people from say for example in the um, Yasawari region um, or in the Western Division, I'm able to understand their dialect and mm-hmm. so forth and I carefully articulate the translation of English words and vocabulary 
in their local dialect so that the message is clear and uh, and, and of course um, translates down to the community. Eh? So that is one of the biggest barrier we face at the moment. Eh? Mm. Uh, language is you know, the basis of everything, but at the same time, it can be a challenge, of course. And uh, the word we use in the Wasawakaviti is mbolembole. It's mbolembole. It's, it's a challenge for us because um, there's so many things that we have to, uh, levels we have to go through so that we can sensitize the information and, of course, make it simpler for, for the listener out there. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That was uh, Mr. Cipriano Nemani, the current director for the Department of Heritage and Arts under the Ministry of Ito KFS within the Fiji government. I'm just holding on for dear life here. For women, it's always safety first. They are the first responder. You're listening to Pacific Prepared. You visited a lot of villages, you know, in outer villages, remote villages in Fiji and other parts of the Pacific too, Joe. How do the, the villages that are sort of remote and cut off and rural, how do they access water normally? Fred, I would say that accessing clean, safe drinking water is still an issue that uh, most communities in uh, Fiji are still experiencing as we speak. Uh, this is particularly villages and settlements in uh, the rural and maritime zones. Uh, I've visited a few villages in, uh, in uh, the four divisions here in Fiji. And uh, some of the villages that I visited, they source their water from boreholes, which I, for one, support the fact that it's unhealthy unless and until they boil it before consuming it. But after, you know, con conversing or talking with people in those villages, they said that uh, they are aware on the safety measures that they need to uh, consider uh, before... While, Did you say they yeah, are aware or they're not aware of they the safety are aware, measures? They are aware of the safety. Like, for example, uh, if they source water from those boreholes, if they use it for washing washing the dishes or uh, for, you know, washing clothes, then it's fine. Go ahead with it. But if it's to be consumed, then it needs to be cooked or boiled before before taking it, yeah. But for some villages, more awareness is still needed. They, they persist, they just go ahead, source the water from the borehole, they consume it. Well, ABC Radio Australia's Pacific Beat program has actually been looking at this specific story. Mm. Um, and Marion Farr has this story now for us. Many parts of the world have a range of challenges in delivering water services to all of their populations. Some of those that are particularly exacerbated in the Pacific are things like many small communities that are dispersed very wide geographically and a very large rural population. So the capacity for governments or the private sector to provide those services to people who are living in rural areas is really quite challenging. What lengths are some people in the Pacific going to to get safe, clean drinking water? Are you able to give some examples? As we know is common to many parts of the world, often the responsibility to provide water on a day-to-day -day basis comes down to the women in households uh, and in communities and they will often need to walk great distances, many kilometres, certainly hundreds of metres, and then carrying 
water back to the household to meet their daily domestic needs. Obviously, it's quite difficult to do that and carry large volumes. So what happens is smaller volumes of water get taken back to the house, um, which means there's less available for um, some of the activities that might seem a lower priority on a, on a day-to-day basis. So, for example, if there's not a lot of water, then it's quite difficult to maintain safe hygiene practices. The Pacific is known as being, you know, a very tropical region in most places with high levels of rainfall. Do you find many people are surprised to hear that um, getting access to safe and clean water is such a challenge? Yeah, that's very true. A lot of the people that I speak with who who don't work with me but ask me about my work are often surprised that the Pacific has any kind of resource challenges because they have this image of this paradise with a bountiful of, of all kinds of resources that are needed. But there are certainly many situations in Pacific Island countries where there isn't lots of rainfall or there isn't a lot of um, locally stored rainfall, for example, some of the coral atolls. Your research looks into how countries can plan to ensure that they do have access to safe and clean water. How might these plans differ depending on where in the Pacific you live? Why is it so important to kind of take local context into example? Communities are largely left to their own um, capacities to manage water systems. Maybe they've had support to um, install some infrastructure and perhaps had some training in operating and maintaining that infrastructure, but over time they're largely left to their own devices to govern and manage uh, and troubleshoot and repair those systems. So the local context becomes very important when communities are managing these systems on their own. It's it's This is not just the challenge in the water resources being available to feed into the system. It's also a challenge of a, you know, a small piped system being maintained and looked after every day, as well as the governance challenges that communities need to be able to perform. For example, making decisions about when to limit water distribution because the the storage tank's becoming low, for example, and how to make that decision and who to involve in that decision-making. Perhaps it's worth mentioning that the shift in other parts of the world is to professionalise rural water services. Thanks to ABC Radio Australia's Marion Farr for that story. Well, we do hope that uh, those content uh, this week uh, provided some great insight on some of the interesting stories and realities on the ground. Well, Fred, thanks for your time. See you next week. Vanaka Joe, thank you so much. Raka. What's your plan? Are you ready to leave your home? Plan now before disaster strikes. Pacific Prepared. This show was made on the lands of the peoples of Stony Creek Nation in Luchawita, Tasmania. Also the people of the Vanua Uviti. Pacific Prepared is supported with funding from the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Any views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the Australian Government. It's produced and distributed in partnership with Radio Australia and networks across the Pacific including Radio New Zealand Pacific, 
National Broadcasting Corporation of Papua New Guinea, Palau Wave Radio, Fijian Broadcasting Corporation, Samoa National Radio 2AP, Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation, and Tonga Broadcasting Commission. My name's Fred Hooper, and thanks to my co-host in Fiji, Josiah Nunga. Please share any information you've learned today, and stay safe. This has been Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared.